This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about management with a government executive who is changing the way government does business. The Business of Government Hour is produced by the IBM Center for the Business of Government, which was created in 1998 to encourage discussion and research into new approaches to improving government effectiveness. You can find out more about the center by visiting us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. And now, the Business of Government Hour. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and managing editor of the Business of Government magazine. Until now, most medical treatments have been designed for the average patient. As a result of this one-size-fits-all approach, treatments can be very successful for some patients, but not for others. Precision medicine, on the other hand, is an innovative approach that takes into account individual differences in people's genes, environments, and lifestyles. It seeks to redefine our understanding of disease onset and its progression, treatment response, and most of all, health outcomes. This understanding will lead to more accurate diagnoses, more rational disease prevention strategies, better treatment selection, and the development of novel therapies. To date, progress in identifying optimal individualized treatments have been modest. Prospective cohort studies have the ability to identify biomarkers and factors that can contribute to future disease. The National Institutes of Health's Precision Medicine Initiative Cohort Program, PMICP, will build a large research cohort of a million or more Americans that will provide the platform for expanding our knowledge of precision medicine approaches that will benefit the nation for many years to come. What are the key strategic priorities for the PMICP? How do you balance accessibility and data security of cohort participants? How do you manage the expectations of the CMICP? We will explore these questions and so much more with our very special guest, Eric Dishman, director of NIH's Precision Medical Initiative Cohort Program. Eric, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Great to be here. So would you provide us a brief uh, overview of the history and mission of NIH's uh, Precision Medicine Initiative, the cohort program? Sure. I, you know, uh, I should start out by saying we shorten it to PMI, Precision Medicine Initi- Initiative. Um, my understanding of it is that Dr. Collins started talking to the president and to other scientists even before that many years ago saying, now that the whole genome has been sequenced and when the whole genome project is is done and we continue to learn how to use you know, that kind of data in both research and clinical practice, we really need to understand all the complex factors that that come to bear on whether this individual at this moment in time is, you know, going to start an illness or a disease or what are their risks. And, and genetic information is certainly a piece of it. But but you know, we know that your zip code is as important or more than your than your genetic code. Uh, and as 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 this moment has occurred to where we have available in an affordable way, everything from wearable technologies and the cost of sequencing is coming down, we have this opportunity to basically 
create the most diverse data set of the most diverse people at a large scale that we just couldn't do before. We didn't have the tools to capture the data. We didn't have the big data analytics tools to be able to process that data and turning it into either meaningful research results or into you know clinical practice. What do I do for this person standing in front of me right now? So the time is now and the time is ripe to actually you know, ride those trends and, and figure out how to get this going. And then, you know, a little over a year and a half ago, the president put it into the State of the Union address and said, we are going to launch a precision medicine initiative. And as part of that, a cohort program that will invite a million or more uh, people in America to donate. Uh, you know, initially it'll be uh, blood and, and urine and their electronic health record data if they have it. And then over time, I mean, we, this is going to be a multi-decade relationship with people if we if we do this right, uh, to, to look at the unfolding of and the complexity of what goes into um, are you as an individual healthy at this moment or not? How is the, you know, I'm interested in the scope and scale of the cohort program. How is it organized? What's the size of your budget? And how many folks are actually helping you out? I, I, I don't know the total number that are helping us out. Uh, I, my three month, uh, uh, my first three months have been really focused on just building the team out. The real core of the startup team occurred uh, back in July, right when I came to NIH, and we made the initial awards to, of about $55 million to 33 different organizations. And that was a mix of health provider organizations who will help us recruit uh, people from their own membership, as well as um, the, the team, uh, what we call the Data and Research Support Center at Vanderbilt, helped by Verily and by uh, the Broad Institute. This will be the largest that we know of biomedical research database in the world and certainly the most diverse. And it'll take us, you know, a few years to get to a million people. Uh, but it's, it's an audacious undertaking and incredibly exciting. Yeah, it sounds it. I, I, how is the – you kind of hinted at it, but is there – I'd like to get a sense of the research portfolio. Is there any research being done in-house at, or versus external? And if so, how are they differ? That, so it, people actually get confused when they hear about the PMI cohort program because they think we're actually doing all the science. And really, we're building a platform that will allow thousands of other studies to occur on top of it. Now, it's not to say, I mean, there's different kinds of research questions we know it will help answer. You know, how do we estimate the risk for a range of diseases for somebody based on not just, you know, uh, their family history, but their you know genetics, their electronic health record data, um, even you know data that's coming in from smartphones or wearables and those kinds of things. You know, over time, you'll see us do seed grants in certain areas, but the majority will be the rest of the institutes. We got to build something that's valuable for the rest of the National Institutes of Health to fund. We'll even be doing uh, what I call research question workshops next year with uh, a wide range of people from different fields of medicine, outside funders as well, saying, hey, this is your national resource upon which you will build and co-invest. You know, we're going to use taxpayer dollars to get a million diverse people's worth of data into a form that you can actually do research on top of it. In some cases, the science needs more than a million people. You know, in some case, a particular field may need one device that's so expensive we can't put it into the homes of a million people. Having other funders come and either do sub-studies from our cohort 
or um, you know, work with us to get the cost down on a particular instrument or measure that they want to use so that a million people could do it. There'll be a lot of collaboration with industry, with academia, and with other funders over time as well. So what is your, uh, what is your job, like uh, being the director of this massive, audacious uh, effort? Could you give us a sense of your duties and responsibilities? Sure. So, I mean, I you know I am the director of the whole Precision, Precision of Medicine Initiative cohort program. I'm the I, I'm treating it as if I were still in industry. I, I yeah. came from Intel, and I said, you know, uh, and I think this may be one of the reasons that I end up uh, getting encouraged to apply. I joined the the original working group more than a year and a half ago, just uh, as an industry representative and. I did not know Dr. Collins, uh, head of NIH, very well, but we happened to be sitting next to each other, and I, I whispered over to him, and I said, you do realize that this is basically the NIH acting like a platform company because you're building out, you know, I mean, I, I think of three platforms that we have to build. The first is an engagement platform. How do we engage a million people in a trusted relationship with you know, feeding information back to them, giving them the option of learning about themselves and those that don't 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 want to. How do you you know give people choice and a set of engagement that's going to keep people committed to this for decades to come? And that's the kind of things that you know marketing companies or consumer products companies know well, right? Um, and then there's the the acquisition platform. How do you actually acquire the data? The digital data, pulling in the electronic health record data from all the different EHRs that people's data may be in. Um, and then how do you build the biobank that can capture this? We believe that we will capture ultimately more than 35 million vials of biosamples that are used for everything from, you know, chemical exposure studies to DNA studies and, and all points in between. The Mayo Clinic, who won the biobank award, is already breaking ground on new facilities to have the freezers that can house that data securely and safely so that people can come back and keep doing studies on top of this information for a long period to come. So acquiring the digital data and the physical samples. And the third is really the sharing platform. How can researchers from citizen scientists to um, you know the top-tier universities in the country, none of whom can really afford a sample size this large, or to collect from that such a diverse population because it takes quite an investment to, to really get all walks of America into this cohort program. Um, so that data sharing platform is another big piece. So I really see as my job as a, as a platform manager that can scale, that will be some of the most computationally intensive research that's ever done, um, as well as the... You know, we're doing research about the research. Like what what are the best known methods for actually getting understudied and underserved populations to trust and come into a research study like this, they have historical reasons not to trust it, right? Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, at some level, uh, you know, evangelist but but platform manager. And I'm, I'm bringing from industry tried and true user experience methodologies, platform development processes and methods, and, and teaching those to government and academics and pulling in other companies who know how to do that. And, and the way to think about it is releases, right? If When we do this right, you know, you think of the, the people that get excited about the next um, um, iOS release from Apple or phone, right, or the next, you know, Google um, Android operating system release. You know, imagine 18 months from now we're doing the heart and lung release, and this is new data that is going to help advance the science of heart and lung, right? We, we, I want the participants, the public, and the researchers to all understand hey, over the next 10 years, here's the kinds of things that we're going to be making breakthroughs on. 
Wow, it's fascinating. So you mentioned that you were at Intel and you were in the working group. Uh, would you tell us a little bit more about your career path? Mm-hmm. And more importantly, you know, what lessons uh, have you learned in the technology world? And I think you hinted at it yeah. um, that it will serve you in this new role. Well, I, I mean, I have to admit when I when I first uh, when I first had conversations with Dr. Collins and others that said you should really consider applying, I, I literally looked behind me, thinking they must be talking to somebody else because I. I am not a PhD. I'm not a biologist. I, even though a whole genome sequence helped to save my own life, my understanding of genetics and genomes is very, very thin. And you know, Dr. Collins and others said, "Look, we have those world experts all around this campus in Bethesda. Um, what we need is somebody that can come in and drive a very complex team for a very complex project that's you know consumer facing, that's scientific facing, that's provider facing." And um, and I think it was those early thoughts that I whispered, not knowing that this would lead to a whole new career path for me uh, around platform thinking that was key. So uh, I'm, I'm trained as a social scientist. I have helped invent and develop methods for 25 years in Silicon Valley on user-centered design. And how do you understand the needs of researchers or a wide range of participants and turn that into uh, the definition of a product that can scale to millions and millions of people? And you know, from how do you handle the security, because we'll be a big security target, right, to um, how do you add new features and capabilities without messing up everything that you've built before? How do you do the marketing and advertising to get to the, the messages to the audiences that you need? All of those things are part of what many industries and certainly the tech industry know how to do well. So that's, you know, part of what I'm trying to bring and and, and really inculcate as an innovation culture right here within NIH. Mm-hmm. So given your background, uh, coming from the private sector and now this new, as you pointed out, and I think it is a very audacious effort, what makes an effective leader? And, you know, could you give us a sense of your leadership principles and perhaps who has influenced you? Mm. Well, one of my key principles is Surround yourself with people smarter than you. This is not hard for me to do in this particular case. So I'm trying to build out a staff. I, I still get intimidated walking on the NIH campus, and it's it's you know you just look you could throw a you could throw a paper airplane, and you know this the person that it hits first may be somebody that's advancing brain science, and the next person is somebody that's going to help eradicate the, the the consequences of asthma, right? And they're mission driven and, and unbelievable to do that. So certainly building an interdisciplinary team that is empowered. Um, I'm not a I'm not a czar. I don't believe in the czar model of, of 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 leadership. I'm there to remove barriers for very smart people who work for me to get their work done. And then another big piece of me is transparency. At age 19, being diagnosed with cancer and facing your mortality, you know, from a very young age, I learned I didn't have time for BS in the world, and I didn't have time to BS other people. Um, I'm not very conflict-oriented, but I'm very open and very transparent. And we will be starting a blog. I will be starting a blog with the public and with the participants that are letting them know, hey, you know, we're on schedule for what we've been talking to you about, and here's what's going great. Or I might come and say a year from now, hey, we're going to be three months delayed on this particular piece of the study, and here's why, and I want you all to understand it, right? That level of directness, um, there's, there's an equation that, that I was taught at Intel, S equals R minus E, success equals results, minus expectations. So really managing people's expectations and helping them understand, um, you know, the com- complicatedness of tasks and, and the reasonableness around when timelines are going to happen and so forth. 
And probably the third piece for me is um, iteration, learn as you go. The notion that you have a perfect plan is, is, is a false one, no matter how much time you spend planning. And there's nothing better than doing to know whether your plan is a plan that works or not. Um, Andy Grove was one of my leadership leaders, the co-founder of Intel, and recently passed away. A dear friend in the last seven years of his life. We worked together on wearable technology to try to make breakthroughs in, in Parkinson's, which is the disease that he had. We both had cancer and had met each other during our cancer phases. So, um, you know, Andy, Andy was an extremely direct and transparent person. Everybody would always talk about, even in his last months um, as he was reflecting on his career and we'd be talking about Intel culture and Silicon Valley culture, so many of which try to model after him. You know, he was trying to even then say, people in retrospect are turning me into this hero and as if I knew everything. And he's like, I learned as I went. You know, you had a good enough plan to get started. You iterate, you surround yourself with experts and you're incredibly transparent and clear about what your goals are. And then you adjust and you continue to keep going forward. So, you know, the, the, the paintbrush of history is very kind. It makes it look like it was all thought through and you knew everything. And the reality is you learn in iterative ways. And you'll see that reflected in the way that we launch, right? We will not be an all-singing, all-dancing launch. We will launch pieces, test it, make sure the participants are loving it, the researchers can use it, uh, the providers who are having their, their their participants come in and say, should I be part of this study or have the proper education? And we'll, you know, it's not that we don't have a five-year plan, but we know it will adjust based on reality on the ground, and you don't know it until you get started. What are the strategic priorities for the PMI cohort program? We will ask its director, Eric Dishman, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. The latest edition of the Business of Government magazine delves into a diverse set of topics and public management issues facing us today. Hi, I'm Michael Keegan, the editor of the Business of Government magazine, and with each edition I present the leadership stories of a select group of public servants and complement their frontline experience with practical insights from thought leaders, merging real-world experience with practical scholarship. Check out the latest edition of the Business of Government magazine and find out. Download or order a free copy at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Eric Dishman, director of NIH's Precision Medicine Initiative Cohort Program. So, Eric, you mentioned uh, in, in, in giving us the overview of the mission of uh, PMI, I'd like you to dig a little deeper if you could. What exactly is precision medicine? How, how does it seek to redefine our understanding of disease, its onset, the progression, treatment response, and health outcomes? And perhaps you could tell us how it actually works. Sure. So, well, I can give you a personal example to start it out. I mean, people people ask me what I would put on my business card if it really best described me, and I would write the words entrepreneurial patient. I mean, having been a caregiver for a grandmother with Alzheimer's at age 16, um, having been born without hip sockets and supposed to have never been able to walk, and now I'm a runner, and it was because my parents at the time would not accept the answer that the doctor was telling them, and they kept looking for second, third, fourth opinions, and one of those doctors had heard of a new research study. It's all about information is power, right? Mm -hmm. That doctor said, oh, no, there's a procedure that we can actually do, and I've met people who are, you know, wheelchair-bound, who had the exact same time, the exact same um, condition, um, and I was lucky enough to have information, and thus, you know, 
am fully able to run and jog and so forth. Um, so in, even in my family growing up, there was this sense in which as, as a patient, you owned own responsibility for your own health and that you needed to triangulate and get data and get information from multiple people. And and then, you know, at age 19, I was diagnosed with cancer that said you're going to die within within a matter of 9 to 12 months. And now I'm 48 and finally cancer-free. And, you know, I learned to become a very proactive patient. So when I say entrepreneurial patient, it's partly because I have spun off companies and other kinds of things that are about healthcare, but it's much more about I invented my own path forward. And that's because we live in a system today that for in most cases is a system of imprecise medicine. It is well-intentioned uh, guesswork by clinicians who are not given the time nor the resources to be up on the latest data. And in many cases, there's not any latest data because we haven't done the research on it. It is a miracle that providers deliver the miracles that they do with such an impoverishment of, of information and a knowledge of how to customize it for you as an individual. So, you know, we have to admit if we talk about this precision medicine initiative trying to accelerate an era of precision medicine that we must be living in one now that's not all that precise. And that's certainly the case um, for so many conditions, you know, common as well as rare. In my own case, when just when I was first diagnosed and they gave me that death proclamation, I didn't have the wherewithal to do this, but it was another patient I met in a waiting room who took me to the Duke Library. I was diagnosed at Chapel Hill. I was being treated at both Chapel Hill and Duke. And she was an actuary, so she knew statistics really well. And I was more of a qualitative researcher. So we looked through the library for a couple of hours at the journals and what we could find about the rare diagnosis I had been given. And she finally, after a while, said, Eric, they don't know a thing about you. And I said, why do you say that? And she said, these studies were all of 70 and 80-year-olds, which are typically the people that get your form of rare kidney cancer. They've never seen a 19-year-old. None of that applies. No one's bad. No one's intentionally trying to do imprecise medicine. We just haven't had the tools and the scale at which to understand the complex variables that come together. What have you been exposed to in your life? Um, you know, what's the environmental uh, exposure as well as the stress exposures that you've actually been in? What's the food situation that you've been in during your life? What's your genetic code predicting that might happen? Um, you know, what's your social network like, which can have huge impacts on health outcomes? We've never had the tools to collect data types and analyze it to say, wow, the particular factors that are all going to come together to make Eric this particular way and respond this way, um, we now understand better. That's what we're trying to enable. And in, in early areas like certain cancers, right, I mean, I, I work closely with another leader I've learned greatly from, Dr. Brian Drucker at Oregon Health and Science University. Brian's one of the fathers of precision medicine. He, he helped turn chronic myeloid leukemia, CML, from a, a death sentence to, oh, there's genetic biomarkers that help us understand which drugs would work for you and that these particular drugs would likely have a very responsive effect, right? So, you know... What we've made some breakthroughs in in cancer, um, we need to open up to a whole wide range of conditions. And more than just the pharmacogenetics or pharmacogenomics of saying what drugs will work for you and which ones won't, how do we actually develop a custom prevention plan for you based on all of these factors so that most of these never conditions never occur in the first place? So, 
I mean, that's the reality. And why we have to do it is because we live in a world of global aging that's going to bankrupt countries' yeah. economies with health care. Exactly. And we can't afford it. <laughs> and, and so you, you pointed out, you kind of hinted at this in our previous segment about the um, the concept's not new and it has been done in certain areas. But what preconditions, what made the time right now and what preconditions are needed in order to pursue this type of medicine? Well, certainly one of them, it comes back to my previous life at Intel, right? Moore's Law, which was the, the advancement of compute, right? And the lowering of cost for even more and more powerful computing was utterly key to making, you know, us get down from being a billion dollars a person to, you know, today close to a thousand or two for an individual to have a whole genome sequence done, right? So you could just couldn't even have thought about doing the sequencing part before. We never had the the wearable and wireless platforms before that could start to capture diagnostic grade, you know, research grade sensing of what's going on with your heart rate or other kinds of things real time all the time. That we just didn't exist before as a as an infrastructure to do it. We're going to take taxpayer dollars to build a foundation that allows thousands and thousands of other studies to get done that probably couldn't happen without this. And they'll be in all kinds of wellness and disease and prevention areas as well as very specific, um, you know, continue the march on cancer, neurological conditions, depression, um, infectious diseases, uh, the range of chronic conditions. So, I mean, that's why we need to do it now and that's why we can do it now. But if we don't continue to have financial incentives line up so that, you know, uh, the, the least amount but most effective treatment was what's going to, you know, be the, the name of the game. You know, volume just is, is the wrong incentive for enabling a world of precision medicine. So uh, I, I have this question around your short-term strategic priorities. If I was to ask you to look out, say, the next six months, mm-hmm. what are your key priorities? Um, build one team. Uh, to develop these iterative platforms, right? Getting that platform thinking into these cultures. Some of our awardees are companies like Vibrant and um, the Broad Institute, which is used to building platforms and tools, and Verily, which came out of Google, right? I mean, they know those pieces, but, you know, another 30 of the awardees kind of know what you mean when you say platform. And this is a very different NIH program. Even some of the awardees who got their first awards thought, okay, I have my grant. I go off and do my bit, and I'll report back in a year. It's like, oh, no, no. No, you're all basically departments of this audacious NIH-like company that we're creating to go build this platform. And, And we've got to deliver a quality experience to the participants and the researchers that's the same everywhere in the United States. Um, and we've got to, you know, agree and unify on what the protocol is for what the physical exam is going to be. So getting that whole team up and running, and it's happening very quickly because everybody is so focused on delivering this mission that it's very refreshing, right? I mean, so, I mean, that's the first one, build one team. Um, I mentioned just moments ago when you asked me about my philosophy, uh, launch and learn, launch and learn, launch and learn. So we're already doing pilots. We have a 5,000-person, and it's growing, sort of beta-testing cohort of people that are, like, testing user interfaces. Are our Spanish translations accurate? You know, do you understand the questions in this questionnaire that we're asking you about, mental health or, or something else? Um, so, you know, that's up and running, and so that's part of this iterate and pilot and iterate. And then um, the third piece of it is what I call avoid the field of dreams, you think back to that Kevin Costner movie, The Field of Dreams, baseball field, but nobody comes to in the middle of a, a rural farm. This means we have to be ruthlessly customer-centric. And what I mean is understand what kinds of research questions, as well as specifically what research questions, 
this tool is being built for. And it can't be all things to all researchers. So we're already doing, and we've been doing um, sessions with researchers from all over the world just to inform even the program back in the days when I was on the working group. You, you mentioned two things that I would like to explore is the working group mm-hmm. and its product. Mm-hmm. But you also touched on the questions, the scientific questions that you're going to be or that are going to be contemplated or the range of scientific questions that are going to be right. tackled. Right. Could you talk about the questions first and then we could talk about the group? Sure. I mean, some of it's sort of the traditional questions that we've already been answering around the field of precision medicine. Uh, I mean, pharmacogenomics, right? It's like, hey, what can we understand about you that's going to help us know what's the right drug to put you on in response to a particular uh, condition that you may have the first time out of the gate? No guesswork. Um, and, and increasingly having abilities to know that if it's not being metabolized right, we're going to take you off of it within a week as opposed to eight, wait for the chemo round of three months to finish and then determine whether it worked or not. But more than that, I mean, we're working on research programs and questions that will help us make new insights into health disparities, right? If we've got um, geolocation data and zip code data f- uh, for our folks in our, in our, in our cohort, um, and we're combining that with, you know, knowledge about what they eat and um, their stress and other health factors, right? We can start to pinpoint, you know, deeper understandings of these sort of broad categorizations of health disparities and really understand the factors that that contribute to and reinforce those health disparities so that we can actually break them apart. You know, and then other pieces of it are much more about, uh, I mean, we'll be doing a whole set of work on environmental exposure, right? And, And this is... In some cases, there are known tools and things that we can use now to accurately measure it. We're not going to be doing this out of the gate, but you can imagine a scenario where we're asking all million people to bring in a cup of water from their drinking supply. And you think about Flint, right? I mean, these municipal water supplies are being tested at the, at the plant, right? What's, you have a last mile, a last inch problem. What are your pipes like in your home? And, you know, what's going on locally? And what are you being exposed to from a water perspective? So... That kind of pinpointing, right? I mean, I, I don't want people to walk away and think that all the questions are out about genomics. Actually, in, the, in V1, version 1 of the platform, we're not even starting to collect genetic information, right? It's going to be survey information, a basic biosample of, of blood and urine, and we can later start to do genetics on that. But we're not going to be doing that out of the gate, partly because of cost, mm-hmm but also partly because we've promised these million people, if they want it, to give them back the data as well as what's important from the data. And in a lot of the genetics, we can't responsibly do that yet because we don't understand. There's not enough science and clinical proof yet that this particular set of anomalies are there. So the questions are going to range, and, and you know, in, in particular fields, I mean, they will cover everything from um, chronic disease to mental health toward to... Um, you know, even I mean, people in our cohort will have, will have, or will get cancer. Right? Um, pregnant women are included in our cohort, and we'll eventually will be adding children, not out of the gate. And other communities that have never been studied adequately, those in prison, those who are incarcerated. Right? Um, there's a lot of complex ethical and recruiting and legal issues that have to be sorted through, but we're tackling it because when we said, "Hey, we want this cohort program to represent the diversity of the country," we meant it. Those aren't just sort of feel-good words on a slogan. We're developing recruitment, legal, policy, ethical strategies to go accomplish that over time. Yeah. So, you know, you wouldn't have any of this, the cohort program, without the people. And you've touched on this a couple of times. But, you know, I'd like to turn from setting up the context of your 
your massive effort to talking about its implementation and execution. Mm-hmm. So how are you recruiting and, and getting volunteers for clinical trials? It's very difficult. W- what are you doing to enlist these folks in direct volunteer or, or study participants? So, there, yeah, there's two primary paths, and, and it's, you know, uh, basically through what we call HPOs, health provider organizations, and those initial four regional medical centers that were awarded six federally qualified health centers who particularly help us get rural and underserved communities recruited into these, mm-hmm. as well as the the partnership with the Veterans Administration who have national coverage. And we're working out which are the first veteran sites that we will do as we try to get good geographic representation as well. So those health provider organizations will bring in many of the people in the cohort. They'll, you know, you'll you'll hear about it through your health provider um, or your doctor, and they say, "Hey, there's this really interesting study. If you're interested, call this 1-800 number or click here." Um, and and they will have their own means of being able to recruit you into the study, and they do your blood draw and and all of the things uh, that that need to be done. The other path is what we call DV, it's direct volunteer, and that one's more challenging because you're trying to build the capacity for anybody in the country to be able to call in and say, hey, I want to put my hand up. Some of them won't have digital access, so you need human ways of getting them into the system. You know, many of them do, and we find we, we continue to find smartphone coverage um, quite wide and pervasive, but we still have to have non-digital ways for people to get on board. And the challenge there is to have the ability in a timely way to get a blood draw for them. They may not even have a hospital. They may not have a health plan. They may not have an electronic health record, right? That's, that's okay. Um, and so we're building out the capacity nationally to be able to you know, get those direct volunteers into the full study by having their physical evaluation and their blood draw done. And there's a whole network of community groups from church groups. Uh, in fact, I'm, I'm going to leave uh, uh, this meeting and, and go to a, a presentation uh, where we're, we have two different workshops working with national and local community groups from churches to not-for-profits uh, to help us say, hey, will you help us recruit and help educate your community about the importance of having that diverse community represented because they've never been studied adequately before. And we don't know what works for for them as well as we do other parts of the population. Mm -hmm. You know, and so you have them on board. And one of the core values, I think, in the working group, and I know you've said it before in some of your other interviews, is engaging engagement and empowerment Mm -hmm. uh, of the folks who are participating. Um, typical, you know, clinical research typically is transactional, right? So how do you cultivate that partnership so that they feel invested with – they're not just investing in giving, you know, uh, their blood or their whatever, that they're actually – this is something meaningful for them? It, it, well, first thing we had to do was recognize – so we, we've already done a series of around 50 what we call engagement studios around the country with very different populations to say – what do you know? What do you think of the words precision medicine? Just help us understand, you know, your trust for being something like this. What would it take? What would what would your community need to see? Those have been incredibly informative to us about what would be useful. I mentioned before that we already have this 5,000-person cohort that we're increasingly adding diverse people to to help beta test and give us feedback on everything from concepts to user interfaces. So we've already started from the beginning of a very user-centered approach and trying to understand those. Um, we are putting participants into the governance of what we're doing. Right? We don't have the quote 
quote-unquote real participants because we haven't launched yet, right? But we have participant representatives and others already involved in everything from the executive committee um, and into the working groups. And once we have our actual participants on board, there'll be means for participants to nominate themselves or others and go through to say, hey, I want to be part of this working group. or um, and, and we'll put some of them on the executive committees that I use to help drive decisions. But more broadly than that, we're we're working on a ton of content, uh, you know, guest lectures from experts on precision medicine in different fields. Um, hey, you know, uh, virtual sessions where people can get on and ask an expert around, you know, what is what does this mean and what would it mean for those of us who have asthma going into the future, right? As well as just video content of both researchers explaining how they do their research in precision medicine, what kinds of questions they're trying to answer, you know, explain what the biobanking is. It's amazing. This robotic technology that puts these things into these freezers looks like something right out of Star Trek, right? But it's all real and it happens. So, you know, that's part of it. And then um, we know that some of the participants will want to do self-forming networks on Facebook and social media and say, hey, I'm part of this and I'm proud and I even want to share my data, right? Even though we're securing it and making it de-identified for the researchers, they may choose to go do that. And there's going to be others that say, I don't want to know anything. I just want to come. I'll do the surveys. I'll do the blood draws for the next 50 years, but don't bug me. So, you know, choice engines that we will change over time, giving people to have options of multiple kinds of relationships with us, and then also investing to make sure that citizen scientists, including those who are in the cohort, if they want to do research on top of the data, can. Um, and, and, And some of the data will be completely open. And as the data becomes more at risk for being re-identifiable because um, we want to protect people's privacy and confidentiality, then there'll be a credentialed process for people to act, you know, to basically to be able to access more risky data. How do you stand up the PMI cohort program? We will ask its director, Eric Dishman, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. How do you deliver health care anywhere at any time? What are the strategic priorities for the military health system? How has MHS sought to address some of the critical challenges it faces? Join host Michael Kagan as he explores these questions and more with Dr. Karen Juice, Acting Assistant Secretary of Defense for Health Affairs within the U.S. Department of Defense. Tune in on Mondays at 11 a.m. for the Business of Government Hour on Federal News Radio, 1500 a.m. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Eric Dishman, director of NIH's Precision Medicine Initiative Cohort Program. When you think of health care and health IT in particular, you think of interoperability and access, so shifting to, uh, to that. You know, what role do you think your efforts will play in either, you know, advancing the goal of IT interoperability amongst health systems? It's going to be a tremendous testbed for things in the context of research that, quite frankly, need to happen outside of research. Um, you know, we're really proud. We've been working with the Office of the National Coordinator and um, others on and, and the seven or eight top electronic health record vendors in the Sync for Science program. And that's really trying to make it so that it's as easy eventually as the touch of a button for somebody to say, I want to donate my clinical information, some or all of it, um, to research, including the Precision Medicine Initiative cohort program. And, you know, in doing that, 
you have to start to face the realities of interoperable or lack of interoperable EHRs and how are we going to set all that infrastructure up to be able to make it easy for people to share their data and to have the right and choice to go do that. So that's a good example where for research purposes, we're going to learn how to do things that quite frankly would be good for all of healthcare practice, right? We're going to learn for research purposes because we've committed as a value to give people back information about themselves who are a part of the study. We're going to be on the cutting edge of learning how to, pro- you know, all of this mobile and wearable data that many of us have in our smartphones, well, first of all, is it clinically useful or meaningful? We don't know, all right? And, and we'll be collecting that data so that we can do the research. How do you appropriately give people information back about these new data types of genetics or mHealth as it's often referred to, right? So we'll be on the cutting edge of doing that and learning how to do that for the providers that are in our health provider organizations that will help, you know, at least give a head start to those as this becomes a more common cultural phenomena. We have to be using cutting-edge security. will be a huge target. And it probably it's my other big, most immediate tactical worry, right, is are we using the twen- best 21st century known methods for security and having industry and government experts sort of make sure and we're going through a FISMA certification process for your listeners out there who know what that, that painful process but important process means, right? So, um, you know, w- w- the other aspect of this is we have to skate to where the puck is going in Wayne Gretzky's terms, right? We're building a current platform, but we have to build it in a way knowing that even three years out, there may be wearables or genetic testing capabilities that we can't imagine that we're going to have to add into our platform somewhere. And so how do we build both the technical platform as well as the program? I, I said to people today, we need a competitive analysis shop. Right. That's that's looking at what all the other cohort programs are doing, not really because we're trying to compete with them. In fact, we're already doing partnerships with other cohort programs to learn from them. Best practices. How do we share data? How do we analyze data across your cohort and our cohort in a meaningful way? But how do we make sure that we are going to where the trends are and and also trying to anticipate cost curves on technologies that today I couldn't afford to put into the homes of a million people, but maybe three or four years out I can. So from your perspective, you know, given your background and now your current role, how do you balance this accessibility versus the data security? How do you make that balance? I, I mean, this gets back to my first principle of leadership in terms of transparency, right? I mean, I, I don't want to tell everybody there's no way that we'll be hacked because it's an impossible promise to make. And if somebody's making that promise to you, then they're not being authentic with you, right? All we can do is communicate these are the measures and the rules that we're actually taking. And if there is a breach, here's what we promise to do to communicate to you and others, right? And so trying to weigh, you know, there are patient advocacy organizations, and my gosh, there's there's an Eric Dishman that, that's joined those and would be at the front of the line of those saying, give me all my raw data as soon as possible. But there's real ways in which the raw data without context can harm a lot of people. So, you know, thinking through these issues with the FDA and others, it's just a careful mix. And I think it'll be different by data type. And, um, and a lot of it depends on how much science and evidence is behind these kinds of things. Um, and as well as there's a cost to returning data to people that you have to be honest. It's like, hey, it's not hard for me to return your data to it's when it's this and this. I just have to remind everybody. You know, people. I, I get people walking up to me on the street saying, hey, you should give everybody a wearable watch. That's And I'm like, how much is that? And they're like, oh, $120. I said, multiply that by a million, right? Um, so... Uh, 
I, I want to show people what we're striving towards and what we're trying to do, give them a timeline and what are the criteria by which we would need to, do, to get to before we can say we'll do this or we'll do that so they can understand the logic uh, that you're walking through carefully in making some of these decisions. There's no doubt that the PMI cohort program is a champion for open data, right? Open doesn't mean it's not secured. Open means we want researchers of all types, not just the tier one uh, you know, top universities who already do this kind of work to get access to it. So we're looking at how how can high school students use this data for research and how do we prop up programs and things that encourage that? And there's no doubt that we're serious about security. Both are true and they interanimate with each other's and in the places where it's complicated, we just say this is the way it is and we don't know how to we don't know how to give you this data back in a right and ethical and secure way. Help us figure that out. So Eric, a study of such scale, scope and breadth and, and depth involves a serious infrastructure and I'd like you to explain to us uh, certain structures that you're building, and they are the Data Research Support Center, the Participant Technology Center, biobanks, and healthcare provider organizations. What are these uh, structures? So, so the uh, the DRC, the Data and Research Support Center. So that award went to Vanderbilt and to Verily and to the Broad Institute with a number of partners underneath them. Think of them as. Um, hosting and housing all of this data that's coming in and protecting it, as well as building out the tools that researchers will be using to be able to analyze it and access it. The PTC, the Participant Technology Center, is much more the front end, right? So they're developing the application that will go on the phone. They're developing the uh, 1-800 number. They're developing the um, – and they're developing the capacity for all those direct volunteers for us to be able to get that blood draw and pull them into the system if they're not associated with the health provider organization. The biobank uh, goes to Mayo, so they store these samples, freeze them very carefully in very careful tubes. I've spent more time learning about the tubes that freezers can last in freezers for decades than I ever thought, and it, there's an unbelievable science to it, and the facility there is just incredible. Some of the challenges are is we need to get those thing, those samples wherever they are in the country centrifuged very quickly and shipped within 40 hours from anywhere in the country, um, and we need to be able to do that nights and weekends. Many of our participants could not get off work to come and engage. So we're setting up 24 by 7 capacity on nights and weekends to go do that. So the Biobank uh, and Mayo are actually doing that piece. And then the health provider organizations range from large integrated delivery networks to um, a, a small federally qualified health center in a rural part of the country. And they will be educating their members and recruiting them and signing them up and doing the consent, helping them walk through their initial surveys if they don't want to take them online, and, um, and then doing the, the physical exam and the, and the capture of, of, of you know, the, the urine and the blood. And they immediately have some processing that they need to do, and then it gets shipped through different courier services to that biobank. Why is science more of a marathon than a sprint? We will ask Eric Dishman director of NIH's Precision Medicine Initiative cohort program when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. From forging a unity of effort in homeland security to strategizing today how to feel the U.S. Army of tomorrow to pursuing affordable housing, eliminating fraud, waste, and abuse in healthcare, and securing cyberspace, the latest edition of the Business of Government magazine delves into a diverse set of topics and public management issues facing us today. Hi, I'm Michael Keegan, the editor of the Business of Government magazine, and with each edition, I present the leadership stories of a select group of public servants and complement their frontline experience with practical insights from thought leaders, merging real-world experience with practical scholarship. 
The purpose is not to offer a definitive solution to many of the management challenges facing government executives, but to provide a resource from which to draw practical, actionable recommendations on how best to confront these issues. Check out the latest edition of the Business of Government magazine and find out. We bring you insights and interviews from government executives who are changing the way government does business. Download or order a free copy at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Eric Dishman, director of NIH's Precision Medicine Initiative Cohort Program. Uh, um, so, you know, I get a chance whenever I have somebody in here to talk about um, the use of collaboration and mm-hmm. partnerships to achieve uh, mission results and outcomes. How are you leveraging partnerships uh, to improve operations or to execute your mission? The I mean, the good news is even when I came into the role, the sort of the premise of partnership is the only way to succeed was was in the water already, and I absolutely believe it. I mean, there's the partnerships within an NIH and all of the brilliance of the other um, institutes, right? But um, also, as I said before, this is not your traditional NIH grant program. You know, you might have an award come out from NIH and there's 20 awards. Each individual institution won their award. They may or may not talk to each other as colleagues, but they've got to go do their science very deliberative way and give it back. Every award that we've given out says, hey, you need to play with another 30 or 40 partners because everybody's got a piece that you're bringing together. Um, so that, that that's created operational challenges. You know, just how do you do a status report, right? We're still struggling through how we do a status report. We we uh, my team gets them on Thursdays and uh, and Fridays, and we were trying to do them on a weekly basis. And it's like, oh my God, this is hundreds of pages to actually read. You know, how do we crisply go do this? And soon there's other companies that we're bringing on board to help do a lot of that. You know, right now we're in kind of startup mode. Um, but the the really interesting uh, partnerships are going to be, and it's not, and I don't mean to say those aren't interesting, but I mean some of the compelling ones we need for this thing to go and go big are those community partnerships. Um, you know, getting at the end of the day, all healthcare is local, and the trusted names and brands are the individual clinician and or you know the particular clinic or the particular hospital in the town or village. And we know that, and we have to build a network, a national network of those local hubs who can help people understand this pretty complex thing, understand the value proposition for them of why they could and should do it, both as an individual as well as for the good of the country, and um, and then help maintain an interesting relationship. So, you know, I mean, I, I said I'm going to end up going on bus tours or, or a van tour or an Uber tour around the country, right, where I'm just going to you know, picnics or movie night or all the different things that we'll do so that people have a sense of family and community for those that want to. Again, there'll be those that don't, but there'll be many that want to go to the Pittsburgh barbecue that says, hey, you're in the study too. Oh, great. What are you learning? And, and that kind of thing. And then the last piece is industry, right? I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to go build a better social networking tools than industry already has. I'm not going to build. So, you know, partnering with them for APIs and and opening up some of their software for our folks to be able to use uh, and services so that I'm not trying to reinvent the wheel. That would that would be a foolish use of government resources. What is your strategy for explaining, you know, not so much healthcare but science to lay people? The work that you're doing now, what's your strategy in doing that? 
Well, first, I, I mean, I try to do two things anytime I explain it. I mean, I am a social scientist, you know, trained much like you would imagine an anthropologist being. So I, I have 30 years of field work that I've done myself with the front lines of nurses, physicians, um, you know, uh, certified nursing assistants, um, and tons and tons and tons of patients. And then I have my other hat on as a patient advocate who, who literally has to help more than 1,000 people deal with their cancer experience end to end. So the first thing that I try to do is to explain to people the value proposition of what we're doing, right? I mean, before we get into technology or anything else, it's like, why are we doing this? Mm -hmm. And what's the pain and suffering that researchers are going through now that this will help to solve? What's the pain and suffering that providers are going through now? And what's the pain and suffering that, you know, people with a wide range of health conditions or not even having access to the healthcare system are going through now? And then how can this particular program help to start to address some but not all of those concerns? So make the value proposition clear, and then uh, the fact that we're doing user-centered design makes it very easy to explain this to people because we literally are studying real people to make the choices and decisions that we are, and we show them the results of those studies. We'll soon be releasing what we call our personas. There's eight personas as we've been studying participants or potential participants across the country that really embody different attitudes towards donating and giving and trust and all of that. So, you know, once you couch it in those terms and then they can, you know, translating the technology becomes easier because they understand what it, what's the technology trying to accomplish. Mm-hmm. So to what extent is your effort, the cohort program, uh, more of a marathon than a sprint? Oh, it's definitely a marathon. I mean, uh, to be honest with you, coming into the job, I, I think where a lot of people were like, oh, let's launch and get something up and, and running really quickly. It's like, we'll do some small things quickly to learn from. But I think the biggest, if we're trying to create a 30 to 50 year trusted relationship with a million or more people and all of their providers as well, and we're trying to build something that thousands, if not tens of thousands, I don't actually know the number, it could be 100,000 researchers are coming to use then we have to listen to them, we have to include them, and we have to build something that over time adds more and more value as we go. Um, that's not to say that it's going to be years before we launch. You know, I, We'll launch when we're ready, but I th- we're already piloting things, and I think you know, it's, it's reasonable to expect in, in late fall or early winter um, that we'll make some more public you know, launches of pieces of this, but we're not going to go to entire country coverage out of the great. That would be foolish, right? We're going to do regions and different populations that we're really reaching out to. And here's a, here's a concerted effort to get rural people or um, people in manufacturing environments from this area. And, and then it won't be long after that we'll open up the 1-800 lines to anybody and all of that. But what I don't want to do is, you know, get people excited about it, say, hey, we're going to be really responsive, and then so many people respond that we can't follow up with the quality. We can't even follow up yet because there's just so many people that are interested. I'm I'm worried about a success catastrophe, right? <laughs> Tens of millions of people are interested. And, and how do you actually manage expectations? I said before, success equals results minus expectations. And the other thing for everybody to realize, there's a lot of studies like this that they do a blood draw once or at the beginning, right? Um, this is, you know, every, it's not that we'll do a blood draw every, you know, 12 to 18 months, but every 12 to 18 months, we'll release another version of the PMI cohort platform. 
It'll have new things that the participants can use. It'll get better and better at giving them dashboards and tools to understand their own data over time. There'll be new tools that the researchers can use, new data types that we can capture, right? I said out of the gate, we're not going to be collecting smartphone data, for example, but eventually we'll add that capability. And then every single release will add some new areas of science, and we will explain you know, what do we not understand about heart and lung and what kinds of data types are we wanting to capture and what kinds of science will be done on top of that and what kinds of breakthroughs can we imagine will come from that? Oh, the, the cognitive decline or an Alzheimer's release, right? What does the power of a million people give us that traditional study mechanisms have not? So so this is a marathon and, and it's, and if you you know, first impressions when you go date somebody are incredibly important. First impressions when we start this thing off are incredibly important. And that transparency and start small but show the vision of the promise of where we're going and inviting and enlisting those people to authentically help you achieve that vision by making the program better as you go, that's the way you succeed. And that's the way that we are succeed, are, are proceeding. Yeah, that's great. So, Eric, um, so what advice would you give someone who, who might be thinking uh, about a career in public service. This was a complete shock to my system and one that I now wish I had done a decade earlier. Okay. I mean, I've done small not-for-profit, large not-for-profit, small for-profit, uh, large for-profit, uh, think tank, and academia. And so I guess for me, uh, while I never had any intention of coming and working in the government, I think I carried in with me stigmas and stereotypes of government workers that are inherent in the jokes that we all tell. But, you know, and even government workers sort of joke about themselves as government workers of, you know, belabor bureaucracy, this notion that people aren't working very hard. And it's just all been absolutely untrue. Uh, I'll tell you, first of all, that my pace and my uh, uh, the, the uh, is three times greater here than it was working at Intel all those years. And I ran a, you know, business that cut across countries and, you know, in a very fast-paced environment. Um, it, one of the big differences is um, the mission centricity of everybody. I mean, at, at the, uh, just walking around the NIH campus, the mission of of going out and trying to improve the health and well-being of everybody in the country is just part of – it's in the drinking supply, water supply there, right? And then within the PMI cohort program, the palpable excitement that so many people know that, wow, we've never done anything of this scale. We always are complaining about sample sizes not being large enough. We're always wishing we had gotten that data too. And this is our opportunity to remedy, remedy a bunch of those, oh, if only we had – um, that is an incredibly powerful force that has made people be incredibly patient with nights, weekends, and long hours, and incredibly patient with this guy coming in from industry using words that they don't understand. I got to tell you, your acronyms in government and, and the processes are far more alien to me than I think I am to them at this point. But um, it, it's a great honor to do it. I, I had never imagined it, and I'm sort of kicking myself for having never imagined it. And um, you know, I just feel like I've been given this incredible gift, and I just want to make the country proud. Wow, that's great. So I, thank you for taking time out of your very busy schedule, and I'll underscore that, uh, for coming in today and talking to me. But more importantly, I'd like to thank you for your dedicated service to the country. Well, I have to say, you know, having been a lucky early prototype of precision medicine whose 23-year cancer journey finally ended when we had the right knowledge and data – um, I don't want you to have to be an executive from industry or um, somebody of the means that I have or who speaks English and is well-educated. And, 
it can't be something for only the few. It's got to be for everybody. And we're setting up the Precision Medicine Initiative Cohort Program to drive precision health for all. And we're going to make it happen. This has been the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with Eric Dishman, director of NIH's Precision Medicine Initiative Cohort Program. Be sure to join us next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government effectiveness. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us. This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org. How do you deliver health care anywhere at any time? What are the strategic priorities for the military health system? How has MHS sought to address some of the critical challenges it faces? Join host Michael Kagan as he explores these questions and more with Dr. Karen Juice, Acting Assistant Secretary of Defense for Health Affairs within the U.S. Department of Defense. Tune in on Mondays at 11 a.m. for the Business of Government Hour on Federal News Radio, 1500 a.m.